Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 20 and read through verse 26. Again, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 20 through 26. Jesus arrived on the scene and began to announce his purpose uh, around 2,000 years ago, a time in which there had been 400 years of prophetic silence, and yet even in the midst of that silence, there was a, a rising anticipation that God was soon to send his son, the Messiah. Now again, they probably didn't have much of a concept of a virgin-born, God-man Messiah, but they were living in anticipation of one who would rightfully and righteously sit upon the throne of David and restore that kingdom known as Israel to even a greater prominence than they had enjoyed under the reigns of David and Solomon. That is, their expectation was for a kingdom that would be characterized by peace, security, and prosperity. And so as Jesus begins to teach about the kingdom, what he teaches flies directly in the face of that which was expected to be associated with the coming of the king, the coming of the Messiah. And very much in a way very similar to our day, in that what often passes for gospel proclamation is some type of promise, some type of extra-biblical eisegesis, the reading into a text, taking a text out of context, and making a promise that when one receives Christ, when one hears and responds to the gospel in repentance and faith, then there is an accompanying promise of prosperity, of good health. Folks, Jesus proclaimed nothing of the sort. He came and said that the way that the one that follows after me will know even greater difficulty than the one who actually rejects me. That you add to the sorrows of this life the sorrows of being ostracized and even persecuted by the culture around me. And so he announces blessings on those who experience the difficulties of life and even the a woe upon those who enjoy the pleasantries of life. And so let's look at Luke's abbreviated account of the Sermon on the Mount, most specifically this section, 
known as the Beatitudes, and we'll look at the mirror image, uh, or at least read the mirror image of the woes, beginning in verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, and for behold, your reward is great, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe! to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Pray with me. Father, again, we thank you for your truth, for the testimony you have given by your Son and to your Son. I pray now that your Spirit would give me an ability to speak and these people that have gathered here this morning the ability to understand and have these truths applied to their lives for the sake of your name, your kingdom, but also for our own good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess it says something about me to say that Really, at the end of the day, my favorite ice cream is vanilla. Uh, Now, it's okay to add a little chocolate to it and a few other things. But basically, you know, if I had to eat one one flavor of ice cream for the rest of my life, I'd probably just say, well, give me some vanilla. That way I can eat it with my chocolate brownies or I can eat it with my uh, peach cobbler or apple pie. You know, so it kind of goes well with everything. Probably as a, a pastor, church leader, I'm a vanilla kind of guy. Just the basics. Just the simple things of the Word of God. Uh, I I kind of rail against some things that I see in the modern American church uh, today. And it very much parallels society. Uh, We're talking this morning. You know, now, when I say Atlanta Stadium, I'm talking about the Blue Saucer, okay? I'm not talking about Turner Field. I'm talking about the original Blue Saucer. You remember right there off I-75, just south of the perimeter. There was nothing wrong with going to a baseball game at the Blue Saucer. It was fine. It, it, was, it was wonderful. Now, billions of dollars later, we're in our third stadium, and you still can't get a hot dog, and you still can't get a hamburger, And you still stand in line. And they've got all these screens and all this loud music and all these things. I just want to see the baseball game. I can have all the frills somewhere else. But I came to see Freddie Freeman and Ronald Acuna. I don't care about all that other stuff. I pray that you come to church see Jesus. Not to see, okay, you know, the the lighting or, you know, the blaring sound or whatever it is, but you come 
to hear the Word of God. And in hearing the Word of God, you see the Son of God. You see Him high and you see Him lifted up. And you experience Him in new and dynamic and life-changing ways. And we do that through the hearing of the Word of God and hearing it in, in kind of an orderly, systematic way. What did Luke say? I'm going to write you this discombobulated fairy tale account so that you'll just kind of feel real good about this guy Jesus. No, I'm going to write you an orderly account so you can understand, so your brain can, get, can wrap itself around this guy Jesus and why he came and what he accomplished. And so we come and we can, in a very orderly way, see the life and ministry of Jesus unfold as one that was even rejected uh, within his hometown, but at the same time began to gather some popular acclaim. Why? Because he was a miracle worker. But as he began to talk and he began to unfold, this is why I came. I did not come to chase the Romans back to Italy. I didn't come to increase your homeland security. I didn't come to make sure your 401K prospers. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to live and to die. I came to demonstrate the way for those who have eternal life. And so he instructs in this section of Scripture this very famous sermon, well-read, often-read sermon. How is it that we are blessed in this world? And again, we're blessed when we don't have everything that we think we have to have, that when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is a hunger and thirst for the righteous one, when, when we weep, over the broken state of our world. When, because of our stand for Christ, we're ostracized and persecuted. That's when you're actually blessed. And so let's zero in this morning on this fourth in the series, verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now for... Future tense verb, you shall laugh. There is a day coming in which you shall laugh. You shall rejoice. One of the great promises found from Genesis to Revelation, expressed in Psalm 34, 8, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. That is when Life as is at its most devastating moments. We can draw near to God and know increasingly dynamic dimensions, experiences of His grace. It seems like grace is one of those things that is easily crowded out in the noise of this world. The noise of football season. The noise of hunting season. The noise of 
you name the season. Do you get it? But in our brokenness, in our pain, when we cry out, the Lord is near to us. And that is a great promise. And so let's begin by speaking to the issue of the reality of a fallen world or a broken world or a messed up world. The world, as we've said over and over again, is not as it ought to be. And thank God it's not as it will be one day. If you examine religions, world religions, or if you examine even what we would call naturalistic philosophies, by that I mean philosophies that leave out the supernatural and try to account for everything that exists by scientific naturalistic means, then they are all hard-pressed and they leave us wanting when they explain how it is the world came to be as it is. But the Christian, we have an understanding, it's an understanding that I guess in a sense, unfortunately, it doesn't fix it, but I know why my heart breaks. I know why this life is filled so often with tears. Again, I mean, I don't, and I don't mean just because of the death of my parents and my cousins and my aunts and my wife and all of these things that have come my way, things that many of you have experienced, the same, same experiences. But in a, in a broken and fallen world, these things are our reality because of what? In the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. In dying, you shall die. And then in Genesis 3, God unpacks that there are cosmological implications for the rebellion's implications for the way that sin and death is going to experience the realities of our first parents' rebellion. And we've looked at this many times. Now, everybody weeps. It is the universal condition. Everybody loses loved ones. Everybody knows what it is to worry about your health. And on and on it goes. I've all, I've, you know, the last few years, I've divided it into three categories. What causes us anxiety and pain and tears? Our health and the health of someone we love or those we love. We hate to get, we, we received this week another devastating diagnosis. I'm sure many of you have seen or heard. Cliff Prosser, Parkinson's, 100% terminal, every time. And a family has already watched it play out once in the life of Tina's mother, Sue. Tragic. We weep. I mean, Charles Hughes calls me crying over his son-in-law. Because of what? Because of sin, the implication of sin. And, and we grieve these things. The world grieves these things, too. The unbeliever grieves these things. They don't like to get that diagnosis. You can be the greatest pagan in the world. You can hate Jesus Christ. You can reject Him. They, don't want, they love people too. They love themselves. They don't want to get this diagnosis. It's universal. 
And then we grieve over the problem of maintaining relationships. We've been talking about marriage in Sunday school. Marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. You have to work at it. It's, it's just like that garden in your backyard. Leave your garden alone. This year, what would happen if you had not watered your tomato plants? By the way, I haven't received any tomatoes this year. I've been meaning to talk to the church about that, okay? Okay? Kind of slack on peaches as well, okay? Just saying. Apple season is coming, okay? I did receive this very awful bottle of barbecue sauce this morning, so. But um, if you do nothing, your tomato plants died. They dried up. If you do nothing, your marriage will die. Your marriage will die. If you're not constantly tending it, we talked this morning, I used to get ridiculed over this one. But if you're not bringing to bear the Word of God upon your family, upon your wife, washing her with the water of the Word, problems, they're coming. Yeah. So it's hard. It's, it's hard to have friendships. Rule number one. If you want me to be your friend, even if you want me to be your pastor, we have to have the ability to disagree. We have to have that. I mean, if, if we can't disagree, you can't be my friend. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be ugly about it. I'm saying you got we're not going to see things exactly alike. Just, it's just the nature. It's hard. And sometimes it's hard to overcome those differences. And we cry over those things. And the world cries over those things. And then the problem of making a living. We've talked about that. I see a couple of, of small business, several small business people here, in fact. I'm going to tell you something. Y'all didn't know this, okay? Listen up. Your competitor wants to take your business. Your competitor wants to take your business. That's part of a fallen world. If you work, well, oh, good, I'm glad I don't have to worry with it. I work for a giant corporation. Well, guess what? That giant corporation's competitor wants to take his business, therefore affect your job. And let me tell you something. The guy in the, in the crawl space or whatever you call those spaces that you work at, cubicles, in that other cubicle, he wants your job too. In fact, he'll slit your throat to step over you in the pecking order. And, and it's, it's adversarial. Your employer wants you to do more for less, and you want to do less for more. You hear that? It's adversarial. Your employer wants more for you and pay you less, and you want to do less and make more. Again, the world cries over those things. And then the believer adds to it what? We're not going to get into this this much because we'll touch on it. We'll go into it deeper next week. But when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, He does not fix every one of these problems. There may be principles that apply, that help you to address these things. How is the best way to live in a marriage? Biblically. How is the best way to raise your children? 
Biblically. How's the best way to be employed? Biblically. How's the best way to run a business? Biblically. But it does not remove you from the context of living in a fallen world. And so we add to that the persecution for believing that the Bible is true, that Jesus is God's Son. And this is where it really gets nasty. And He is distinctly and uniquely the only Savior. He is the only way to heaven. Okay? And that's where we get to be the odd man out in the cultural debate. So, we live in a fallen world. It's a universal reality. And suffering comes even to believers. One of my favorite radio preachers is a guy named Steve Brown. Key life. Got a voice like a foghorn. Really good, good resonant voice. He once said, and I believe he was quoting somebody else, but he says, when an unbeliever gets cancer, a believer gets cancer, so the world can see the difference. Now, obviously, that's not a scientific statement, but there is a reality. To the afflictions that come to the unbelieving world, come to the believing world. Why? So the world can see that God's grace, that the gospel makes a difference. And that is true. That is true. So, we live in a fallen world, and, and here's, here's something unique to the church. We live out these fallen realities together. I have made this comment many times. Now, I love to laugh with y'all. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm very funny. You know, I, I'm, I'm a very funny guy. And so I know when you're with me that, that you enjoy laughing with me. Some of you laugh at me, which is hurtful, but it's okay. I don't mind. I can live with it. I'm tough. But I love to laugh with you. And But you're not a pastor if you don't cry with your people. And probably everybody in this room, I've sat with you in that moment of season, even, of crisis. And we do it together. And it's not unique to the pastor. We all should do it together. We should be weeping with the Prosser family right now. We should be weeping with the McDaniel family right now. And I don't want to leave anybody out, but you get the gist of it. We weep and we do it together. And so that's a reality in Jesus. But how in the world can we be blessed in this time? Why is this a blessing? Well, Again, we do not see this world and the realities of this world as all there is. There is something that lies beyond this world, and we do not suffer in vain, and sorrow does not come to us without grace sufficient for those moments. And so there is truly a persistent presence over uh, presence of, of tears, and we cry over sin's impact. Paul wrote in Romans 8.23 that we groan. We groan as we look around us. I, I groan. I, I, I cannot help. But when I go to a public gathering, whether it's a ball game or, or whatever, this is all they have. How many people are sitting here? And all they have is this 
bit of frivolity in this moment. Do they ultimately know Jesus? How can I make him known? Do I, do I go up to the, to the uh, do I go to somebody's little league or pony league game? Do they still call it pony league? Is there still pony league? I don't know. Anyway, do I go to, that, that's not barrel racing, Kristen. It's a baseball league, okay? All right. And so, um, should I go up there and, and break into the, to the announcer's booth and say, I'm going to preach the gospel to y'all today. Stop this ball game right now. I've got something to tell you that's far more important than whether or not your children play baseball. I need to tell you about Jesus. I need to tell you about a Savior. Maybe I should. Maybe one day we'll all be held in account for not doing that. But at least we ought to think. As we look at the world, Jesus looked at the, the Samaritans coming. It looked as a field white unto harvest. We ought to see people who need a Savior, and we weep. We weep when we recognize that most of this world, even here in the Bible Belt, in beautiful downtown Clay, Alabama, Very likely that most of the people living within a 10-mile circle of this church do not know Jesus Christ. Probably entire. I don't, I mean, that's not a judgmental statement. Most of your co-workers probably do not know Jesus Christ. It would be the rare context. And we should weep. How many of your family members do not know Jesus Christ? Probably more than you think. Probably more than you think. And we, 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 it is an appropriate thing for us to weep over the realities of a fallen world and we cry over our own sin. Paul wrote in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. You know who that applies to? The good-looking guy standing right here. Yeah. Wretched man that I am. I'm glad you don't know my heart. Oh, I'm so thankful. I'm glad I don't know yours too, okay? But yeah. But I'm a wretched man. I moan and groan over my own sin. That's why it's a blessing to weep over the realities of my own fallenness. That that yes, I would desire to please Jesus and I fall so far short. I desire to be a faithful and accurate preacher and proclaimer, an effective preacher of the Word of God, and so many times you feel far less than that. We weep over those realities. We cry over the sins of the church. How many of you had some, well, I don't go to church because it's filled with hypocrites? One response is, yeah, sure is, I'm one of them. Again, by that, if what you mean is, that my ability to live out the Christian faith is far less than my desire for living out the Christian faith. If that's what you mean, again, I don't. I hope I'm not double-tongued or you know things like that, or you know go out, get away from the church and talk a different way or act a different way. I, I think if you went to Grayson Valley Golf Course and ask around with those knotheads that I play golf with, they would tell you. In fact, now, some of them told me this week, said, we're afraid to come to your church. You'll call us out. And so, uh, 
They're probably right. But, um, but yeah. But be consistent. But there is a reality. I'm aware of my sin. And those that follow Christ become increasingly aware of their own sin. And it grieves us. And, we, we, and it's a blessed thing to not be oblivious to our own sin. Had an interesting phone call this week. One of my friends called me. I do have some friends. I really do. Yeah. I treat them all very wonderfully and try to encourage them and speak, speak words of encouragement to them. Don't say ugly things to them. He said, I was preparing to preach, and he's preaching through 1 John, and he's on verse 9 of chapter 1. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Great verse. Really one of the first verses I learned at 15 years old after being converted. And he was, said, you know, this guy in a commentary wrote, well, we shouldn't obsess over this, our own sins that we're not aware of. And he said, I struggle with that. And I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, there is a sense where we should strive to know our own sins. Search me and try me, O Lord. See if there be any wicked way within me. That should be our prayer. Are you bold enough to pray that prayer? Lord, show me my sin. He might. Yeah, it hurts. It stings. Yeah, yeah. But I said, here, here's, I think, what he's getting at. We should try to grow in grace, grow in our knowledge of the Word, that we can become more aware of our sin. But I do not lie awake at night. Oh, oh Lord, I know I sinned today. Let, help me to remember that. I've got to confess it, Lord. Oh, Lord, I need to confess that sin. I can't sleep. I'm just so guilt-ridden. No. I'm thankful that before I'm even aware of my own sin and sinfulness, your blood has cleansed me from all of my unrighteousness. That I stand before you clothed in the righteous garments of Christ. So both and. We should desire to know our sin and confess our sin and repent of our sin and, and to, to kick free of that. Let me tell you something. You'll put yourself in the assignment. Remember, y'all have heard me talk about Luther back here in this room after 1517. He was so obsessed with his sin, he, cries, he, he crawls up these stone steps on his knees, and they're bloodied, and he's driving his confessor at the Catholic Church crazy. And said, The guy told him, said, Luke Martin, please quit coming in here and telling me you ate one too many biscuits at breakfast. Would you please go out and sin in such a way that it would be, at least be worth listening to? That's not exactly what he said, but that's the gist of it. He was obsessed about it. So there, you can have an unhealthy obsession with your sin, but it's a good thing to be broken by the reality of our own sin and the sins of the church, our failures. Uh, one of my regular things I listen to is the Gospel Co Coalition podcast. David Platt was on there this week, young man that used to be pastor at Brook Hills Church. He's written a book something's got to change just recently about an experience he had uh, ministering in the Himalayas. That's, that's where uh, uh, Mount Everest is, the Himalayas. 
and they've never heard of Jesus, they have no knowledge of Jesus, any any type of witness. There, there been he was aware of someone hearing about missionaries in town and a lady running home, running into her house and drinking a bottle of poison to kill herself because she did not want bad things to happen in her community because the mountain spirits were angry over the presence of the gospel witness. And he was very broken over what he observed and experienced and heard there. When we go to Romania in a couple of weeks, and again, I haven't been there yet, but to see what the Greek Orthodox Church has done to oppress the people and obscure the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should be broken over that and over their lostness and their inability and unwillingness to know and to hear the truth. We should be broken over these and other realities. And Jesus says if you're aware of them and you're broken by them and you weep over them, you're in a blessed state. You're in a state of knowing God's grace. As you see the world through His eyes, through His eyes, through His paradigm. And then we cry over the sins of the world. We went to see the movie Unplanned a few months back. And I literally shook. I knew what was coming. And it wasn't that graphic. This is a movie about a lady that has an abortion and becomes a Christian later. And I shook. And Ellen looked up and said, do you need to get up and leave? And it wasn't, like I say, it wasn't near as bad as some violent movie that we might see as far as graphic. But I knew what was happening, what they were describing, and how many thousands of times each and every day for the last, what's that been, 46 years? Is that 46 years? The last 46 years, millions upon millions of God's image bearers have been dismembered and destroyed at the altar of convenience. We should rightly weep over that, over the idea that to, to that we should celebrate sexual perversion in in the name of human expression that it's that it's a good thing that this person has finally announced that they are this or that or the other no we should weep that sin has had such a devastating impact that these things are considered virtues not that it's wrong but they're actually considered as virtue. So we cry. We weep. We live in a world that's broken by sin. It's less than what it should be. Sin has impacted each and every one of us, and we see it, and we weep, both in terms of our personal experiences, but even in our corporate citizenship in the world, in the community, in church. We weep over these things. And so... We should know this third thing, and I, I, I'm not going to be able to finish today, but our tears are purposeful. Why do we cry? Because it hurts. Is that fair enough? 
Why do we cry? It hurts. Things happen to us that are not what we would want to happen. We wouldn't write the script this way. We would desire things to be different. One word of comfort. Things are as God has ordained them to be. Now, let's say, let's say something else about that. If your life is fouled up because you've been an idiot, it's your fault. Is that simple enough, plain English? I mean, you know, if you've ruined your finances or ruined your health or ruined whatever, your relationships, because you've been a complete idiot, it's your fault. Don't use God's sovereignty. It's almost blasphemous to blame God for your own stupidity. But there is the reality God has ordained these sorrows. David wrote in Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Yeah. But again, when sorrows came, he drew near to God and God drew near to him. It's a great truth. God uses our suffering as a means of refining. As a means of, you know, no amount of pleasure in this life will satisfy ultimately. In fact, and, and, and this is the world we live in now, you know, I've, I've, I've said, you know, children are a blessing from God. And, and I, I, I love having grandchildren. They even, they're even a bigger blessing, okay? And, and so, but... We live in a time of child idolatry. That it's all about what my kids want to do. And I think I'm going to scratch some itch in my life by my child accomplishing this. It's not going to scratch that itch. It's not going to scratch that itch. It's not going to satisfy. And, and yet, when things are going well, we're willing to do everything and anything. I've got the finances to do it. I've got the time to do it. And so we go here and there and the other. But vacations and accomplishment and success, when real tragedy comes, doesn't dry the tears. It's then we draw near to God and recognize He's the only one that can give rest to the weary. I've often read from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, Better to be in the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the way of all men, and the living lay it to heart. What does that mean? It's a great thing to have a funeral every week? No, not so much. I'm tired of them. I wish y'all wouldn't have them. How about that? Would y'all do me a favor? Yeah, I'm tired of them. But let me tell you something. If the death of someone you care about breaks you out of the drunkenness of this world, being 
thinking that, that the, the stuff of this world is going to satisfy your heart, then it's a good thing that you're in the house of mourning because you're going to pass that way too. And you better lay the lessons to heart. There is the day coming. You will stand before God. And there's not enough trophies, and there's not enough academic honor rolls, and there's not enough band stuff and art stuff and dance stuff, whatever it is, that's going to balance the scales. See, we'll realize that when the sorrows come our way. But when the living is easy, we fritter off into every other thing, every other tangent. And so, better. Better to know the bitterness of life and to learn its transcendent meaning. That is what? That one day I will give an account and there's only one way that I will be prepared. Our tears are temporary. That helps. Sorrow lasts for the night. But joy comes in the morning. Yeah. And I again, I don't think that's just a heaven promise. I don't think that's just a heaven promise. I think there's seasons of sorrow. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for everything. There's a time you're going to cry, and that's the appropriate thing. Here, here's a lesson you've got to learn. It's how to rejoice, as Josh sang about, in the midst of a storm. All of life is a storm. All of life is a valley of the shadow of death. If you don't learn to rejoice in those times, you're not. Because that shadow is always there. There's always a loved one. There's always a loved one. There's always a problem. One of the first books I had to read at Beeson Divinity School was Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. The disciplines of the Christian life, prayer, fasting, Bible study, worship, on and on and on. The discipline of celebration. Yeah. Why did God require Old Testament Israel to observe feasts? I want you to come apart no matter what season, no matter how bad the harvest been, I want you to acknowledge I am your God, I am good, and you're blessed to be my people. I want you to forget about the sorrows, and I want you to remember my goodness. And we need to do that. We can laugh even before we get to heaven. And final thing I'll say this morning is our tears are meaningful. The psalmist wrote, he holds them in a bottle. I don't know what he's going to do with them. I don't know what he's going to do with them. But I know this. He takes note of every single one of our tears. He knows them. Just as much as he's numbered the stars of the heaven, he has numbered the tears that flow from our eyes. And he says, I'm near to you as I weep. And I want to teach you a lesson in this life. I want to teach you a lesson for this life that you can laugh 
that you can laugh. There's a time that you can laugh. There's a day coming. There's a day coming that shall be characterized by unbroken joy. But that joy will be broken in this life. But there should be, because of the way we see things, what we know about living life in God's grace in a broken and fallen world, there is an appropriate laughter and joy and rejoicing in this life. Sometimes I get called on the carpet by various people for cutting up a little bit too much. I said, well, you know, I've known a lot of sorrows. It's tough. I take this work incredibly seriously. I take standing here very seriously. But not everything in the world is super serious. You got to laugh sometimes. And you need to have some joy and some enjoyment. That goes with it too. Yeah. So blessed are those who weep. But as we weep appropriately, we shall find the opportunity, even between here and then, to laugh, to rejoice. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth, for your grace, for a grace through which we are saved a grace that we find sufficiency for life in a very flawed and fallen world. And Lord, I pray that each and every day until we see you, until we see you, that in our weeping we shall also know a measure of joy, that you're, you haven't abandoned us, that there's a purpose in our tears, and that we can know joy and even rejoice in what you're doing and what you're going to do in our lives and in our midst from now and until the day we're with you. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.